Now, let's hear those pages rustle as you open your Bibles, one of the most pleasant sounds in a worship service. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Matthew, chapter 16, 21 through 28. Let us approach the throne of grace before reading. Our gracious Father, we ask that you will use this pulpit to help to establish once again in the church wondrous truths, many of which are almost forgotten in many a quarter of those who claim your name. To bless Heavenly Father that our hearts may be open to receive Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And that in sovereign mercy you would look upon us needy sinners and save for time and eternity the lost among us and build up the faith of those that you have drawn through your Holy Spirit effectually to Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. Will you now use this word in that marvelous way in which only you can and extend the ministry, Heavenly Father, through the four corners of the earth that lost people throughout the globe will hear the gospel through this ministry, not because we are anything, but because Christ is everything, and we desire to lift him high. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Now, gradually, we have seen that the disciples are understanding who Jesus is. In the text last time, we saw that Peter confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you understand who Jesus is, then you will understand that you must follow him. If you understand who Jesus is, you must also come to understand what it means to be his disciples. And that's what Jesus teaches us in this segment that we have read this morning. Now, there are four points that I want us to see from this portion of Scripture. And the first is the prediction of Christ. The prediction of Christ, as we see it in verse 21, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now you will notice that in chapter 17, verse 22, the Lord Jesus says virtually the same thing. Look at it. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And in chapter 20, verse 18, the Lord Jesus said for the third time, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so the Lord Jesus, in light of that confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, now begins to help his disciples understand more and more what it means that he will be going to Jerusalem and that he will die for sinners. And so verse 21 summarizes for us, back there in chapter 16, summarizes for us the sacrifice of Jesus. And about that sacrifice and resurrection, we see, first of all, the necessity of it. Look in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. There's a divine must about the sacrifice of Jesus. Why this must? This must because God had decreed it. Because God ordained it, because the cross is no accident, because he determined that he would save his people from their sins. There is a divine must to the cross of Jesus. And because Jesus willingly served his father in saying, Father, I will go, I will redeem, I will shed my blood for those you have loved from before the foundation of the world. I will redeem them, I will save them, Father. There is a divine must to this great sacrifice of Jesus. And it is a must because without it, you would be lost forever. If you are to be saved, there is a divine must. You must be redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. And so our Lord Jesus Christ knew from where he came and what he came to do. We see the necessity of his sacrifice, but also the place of it, which is, according to verse 21, Jerusalem. And as we read in chapter 23, verse 37 of Matthew, Jerusalem is the killer of the prophets. To that cross outside that city, he set his face like a flint, that place to which God had sent his prophets, and now they will kill God's own son. But we also see the suffering of his sacrifice the suffering of it. For he says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He will suffer many things, many things indeed, a mock trial. Oh, the pain that our Savior was put through by these elders and these chief priests and these scribes, as well as by Gentile rulers, the many things. But behind those many things is the greater thing which is the greater thing of God the Father. It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief, as we heard this morning from our Old Testament reading. This greater thing among these many things is that through these many things, he is suffering and bleeding and dying, and the wrath of God is poured out upon him in the place of sinners like you and like me. What glory, what wonder that he would do this for sinners like us. What torture 
is hidden behind these words. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. He will suffer. But also we see the victory of his sacrifice. For you see, he says, he will be raised on the third day. The divine must governs the resurrection as well as the cross. And your Savior is not in a grave. Having suffered on a cross, he rose bodily from the grave on the third day in order that he might save you from your sin. And so we see the necessity of his sacrifice, the place of it, the suffering of it, the victory of it. But why, people of God? Why? Why would he do this for you and for me? And the answer to that question is that he satisfied the wrath of God. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He reconciled sinners to God who had broken that relationship in the fall of Adam. And he was raised from the dead for our justification. And there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that is the name Christ, Jesus. People of God, never allow these things to become commonplace to you. Never read a text such as verse 21 and read it as if it were just a common thing. But say, oh, my soul, stand amazed that the Savior would be willing to come and suffer and bleed and die in my place and in my stead and bear God's wrath for me. Be amazed that he wove by his sacrifice a perfect righteousness to be imputed to his people. A complete finished atonement was achieved in order that he might pay the price once for all for my sin. Now let me ask you, someone here today, you're lost, undone, you don't know Jesus. Do you now begin to see your need Do you see that if you are to be saved, it required this immense thing to happen, that God, the Son, would come into this world and save you by going to a cross for sinners? Do you see the absolute perfection of the work of Christ and that he can cleanse you from your sin? There is no other safety but the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way that guilt can be removed. There is no other justification but by faith in this crucified and risen Lord. No other way. And so the first thing that our Lord Jesus does is he gives to us the prediction of his sacrifice and his resurrection. But the second thing we see in the text is the protest of Peter. The protest of Peter. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. We see the ignorance of Peter, the apostle. He says, Never, Lord. Now, the Greek text takes two negatives, u and may, and brings them together with a future indicative. It's as if Peter were saying, Never, never, Lord, will this happen to you. Not at any time will this happen to you in the future. Never will this happen to you, Lord. It could not be a stronger protest when Jesus says he will suffer and go to the cross. Peter, don't you understand You are protesting your own salvation. Peter, don't you begin to see there is no other Savior. There is no other way. Don't you begin to see the depth of your sin, Peter? Do you begin to see it now, people of God, that there is no other Redeemer but the Lord Jesus Christ and no one who can save but Him? What ignorance there is, but it's ignorance that will be cleared up over time. If you're ignorant today, may the Spirit of God show you your need and show you that you must have a Savior that goes to the cross. But not only is there ignorance here, there's arrogance, isn't there? 
I mean, this is Peter who in the previous passage said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter says, Not, no, 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 Lord, never, never will this happen to you. He confessed Christ, the son of God, and now he presumes to tell him what to do, just like you and I. Tell me if that's not true. We confess his name, we follow him, but our greatest failures are in those times in which we say, no, Lord, no, you don't get it. This is the way it ought to happen, not the way you say it should happen, but the way I want it to happen, Lord. What arrogance there is within the sinful human heart. Peter is viewing things from a human point of view rather than from the point of view of God's glory and God's omniscience. But you see that though Peter protests in his ignorance and in his arrogance, that we see also Jesus' steadfastness in his rebuke of Peter. It's a threefold rebuke. In verse 23, he says, he turned, and I think that means he turned and faced Peter. He's looking him in the eye, and he says, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, Get behind me, Satan, you're in the way, you're taking the devil's part in this thing. Don't be to me a scandal, that's really the word he uses, a hindrance, a scandalon, don't be a scandal to me. Satan offered Jesus the kingship without suffering, and now Peter is saying the same thing. You can be a king without suffering. And then Peter was not thinking. I mean, that's what Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You aren't thinking biblically. You aren't remembering the prophecies. You don't recognize that the scriptures say the suffering servant of Jehovah must die. He must go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Now, what amazes me, as the Lord Jesus hears this protest and responds to the protest of Peter, is that you can see how consistently your Lord moved toward the cross, allowing no hindrance to stand in his way. Do you see how completely he loved and obeyed his Father? Do you see how completely he loved you, that he would not allow anything, he would not allow anyone to keep him from fulfilling his call to go to a cross and save you from your sins. Do you begin to see that even in Gethsemane, when he felt that his soul would break as he considered that he would bear the awful wrath of God as a substitute for his people, nothing hindered his going to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. See here, sovereign royal love that will pour out his blood as a sacrifice for sin. Hear this in the words of William Williams' great hymn, Love in Agony. The enormous load of human guilt was on my Savior laid. With woes as with a garment, he for sinners was arrayed. And in the horrid pangs of death, he wept, he prayed for me. Loved and embraced my guilty soul when nailed to the tree. O oh, love amazing, love beyond the reach of human tongue. Love which shall be the subject of an everlasting song. This is the glory of it. Our Savior was willing to go to a cross. The perfect, sinless Son of God was willing to go and to bear the wrath of God and to take our ugly, awful, despicable sins upon Himself and bleed and die and take the death that I deserved and pay the penalty that I deserved to pay. The immediate application of this comes from another well-known hymn line. Were the whole realm of nature mine... That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul 
my life, my all. What Christ did when he died for us demands your and my discipleship. It it, it deserves your all, your everything, your life. That's the only response that in faith we can give to the Savior who saves sinners like us from sin. Lord, I give you everything. You who gave everything to go to a cross, I now give my everything to follow you. Which takes us, I think, to the third thing. Having seen his cross, we see our cross, and we see the paradox of discipleship in verses 24 through 26. Now, the first thing I want you to see about this discipleship, this paradox of discipleship, is the image of discipleship. What is the image? The image of discipleship is the image of a cross. For he says in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That cross, which was not even mentioned in polite society because it was such a gruesome, awful way to punish criminals. But the image is simply of a criminal who was conducted to his execution by carrying the load of the cross upon his back. That is the image of discipleship. What does he mean? Jesus means follow me. Jesus means die to self. Jesus means renounce yourself. In all of your callings in life, die to self. As a husband, as a wife, as a child, as an employer, as an employee, wherever you are, doing whatever you are doing, deny yourself and follow me. Take up your cross. Christ denied himself to redeem us. The redeemed deny themselves in order to serve him in faith. Do you see the paradox of discipleship then in verse 25? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The paradox is simply this, that saving one's life now results in losing one's life in the end. And that losing your life now results in saving it in the end. Jesus is saying, I died for you, now you follow me. Through the straight gate, you follow me. Against the grain, you follow me. Against the world and the flesh and the devil, you follow me. Against your natural inclinations, you follow me. When you don't understand, you follow me. When things are dark and difficult, you follow me. When you are tempted to do otherwise, you follow me. When there is within your soul such strong temptation to go another way, you follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, says Jesus, the Savior of sinners. People of God, you are not redeemed in order to satisfy yourselves, nor am I. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, and that price is the blood of Jesus And he calls you in all of life, in everything, to follow him. Are you? Are you, by the grace of God, striving by all the means of God's appointment to follow him and to be faithful in all of life? Or do you work with boxes? You have a church box. You have a Bible study box. You have another box maybe for your business ethics that doesn't relate. Perhaps another box for your sexuality that doesn't relate. Perhaps another box for your marriage. Get rid of the boxes. In all of these things, follow Christ. In all of these things, take up your cross, deny yourself. Be a follower of the Lamb. The cross then means whatever self-denial, afflictions, trouble, persecution, whatever it takes to follow Him, I will follow the Lord. 
And each Christian has a cross. We each have duties. And the only way that we can be joyful in this walk and smile at the scaffold and sing at the stake is when I know that his cross, by which I'm redeemed, gives meaning to my cross, by which I follow him. But you know, there's a contrast to true discipleship also in this passage. Did you see it? It's found in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? It's the worth of a soul and the worthlessness of the world. You know, the old authorized version, as I recall, puts it this way, and it's an accurate translation. The word it's suke, it can be life, it can be soul. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now turn that over in your minds. Don't hasten by it. Make sure that it lodges in your mind and in your heart. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? A soul can be irretrievably lost. And if you lose your soul, it is because you will to lose your soul. There are some here who care nothing for Christ. Eternity awaits, eternity yawns, eternity gapes. And there are no exceptions to the grave unless Jesus comes first. We will die. We will enter into eternity. A Christ-filled eternity if we have trust in Christ alone for our redemption, or a Christless eternity if we do not know Jesus Christ. Oh, eternity. People think of that word, eternity. Can you begin to contemplate, just try to contemplate what it means to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, either in the bliss of the presence of your Redeemer, or imagine this, without the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the media to which we've been exposed this week, radio, television, social networking, all the media to which we've been exposed this week in one way or another say, think of now, think of the present, think of gratifying the flesh, think of now, think of now, think of now. And now we come to the Holy Scriptures and the Scriptures say, no, no, think of eternity and think of your now in view of eternity. Always live as a believer in light of eternity. Let me ask you, what, what can you compare to the worth of your soul? Without Christ, what have you profited? If you have the largest business and the biggest bank account and, and the greatest uh, respect in the world or notoriety or fame, what have you profited if you have all of these things and yet in the end you die and you lose your own soul? Do not barter your soul for the trinkets of the world. Lose your soul and you lose all. Man's breath is in his nostrils. I take my next breath because God gives it to me. He could take it away. I could die at this moment. And what would it profit if I lost my soul or you lost yours? The believer then sacrifices for Christ here in love to the one who loved him. And this shows how we value the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But we sacrifice nothing in the end who are believers. 
We take up our crosses, we deny ourselves, we follow him, but we gain everything in the end. Everything, everything in the end. Now we've seen the prediction of Christ, the protest of Peter, the paradox of discipleship, but the text next gives encouragement for discipleship, and so this fourth and final point is the promise of his coming. The Lord Jesus gives encouragement to you in your discipleship and following him. The promise of his coming. You see, he says in verse 27, where the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Christ, once delivered up to death, will come in judgment. He will come, according to this text, in his Father's glory. Surrounded by heavenly pomp, he will distribute the rewards of grace at the last assize. God's people, their works, your works, people of God, contribute nothing to your acceptance with God. Contribute nothing whatsoever to your acceptance. But believers' works do evidence a true and lively faith in Christ and will receive the reward of grace at the last day. But the unbelievers' works, the unbelievers' works, none of which were done in faith, none of which were done to God's glory, none of which were inspired by the Spirit of God, will show that they did not believe in Jesus. Now, people laugh at this. I heard a report on the radio a while back in which someone gave an editorial. They were laughing at evangelical Christians because we believe that Jesus is coming again. Well, they laughed at Noah when the flood came. They laugh at us when we talk about Jesus and the judgment. But let me tell you, my friend, eternity is written on the heart. And there's not a person living that does not know deep within that he will stand before the judge on the last day. It's called conscience. It may be seared. It may be suppressed. But everyone knows that there is a judge and a day of judgment is coming. And Jesus is going to come again just as surely as he was raised bodily from the dead. And there is nothing more sure in all history than that. This same Jesus will come again and will judge the quick and the dead. This same Jesus. The world laughs. The world says he was just a great teacher. He was just a moral man. Oh no. He's the Savior, the Redeemer of sinners. And he will be the judge on the last day. Jesus is coming again, and he gives that to us as believers as an incentive for discipleship, following him, looking ahead to eternity, look to the return of Jesus Christ, and let that keep you pressing on in your discipleship with Jesus Christ. Christian, live in light of the blazing, blinding light of the judgment day when you will be declared a trophy of grace before a watching universe. If you've never read that biography of George Whitfield by Arnold Dallimworth, two big, thick volumes, you can't put them down, they're so wonderful. You need to read them if you've never read them before. Glorious, glorious books. Dallimore points out the driving force in Whitfield's ministry. He says, thus we find him making frequent use of such expressions as it is a small thing to be judged of man's judgment, to my master I stand or fall. And in a little while we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ where I shall give a strict account of the doctrine I have preached, 
the words he gave me to see the vanity of all commendations but his own open a window into Whitfield's soul. And this constant awareness of the coming day of accounting became from this time forth one of the underlying principles of his life. Is that an underlying principle of your life? Christ is coming again. I will give an account on the last day. Will you receive that as a glorious encouragement and incentive to discipleship? Isn't this precisely what we are taught in 2 Peter chapter 3? When we have in that rich passage this promise of the coming of the Lord in the last day, we are told in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are thus, what things? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What sort of people ought you to be as you live in light of that day? Well, you say it might not happen in my lifetime. It might. Okay, what if it doesn't? What if it's not the next generation or the next? It's going to happen. And every generation of Christians should live as if it might happen in my lifetime. Let this determine your steps. Another incentive to discipleship that we find here, however, I should mention, is that kingdom power is an encouragement. You see, in verse 28, he says, Truly I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is partly fulfilled in the very next chapter when the disciples see the transfigured Christ and they see something of the glory of his kingdom. And it was fulfilled in his resurrection and at Pentecost and with the powerful spread of the gospel. I think the theme here that we should take for encouragement is to be encouraged by the saving rule and reign of Christ that through suffering and death Christ ascended to his throne and now we see him exercising his royal authority. And come what may, he will exercise it. He will always have his church, always have his truth, always have his people. He is accomplishing the purpose of saving his people unto himself. Now I want to conclude by asking us all, but especially if if you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus, I want to ask us all to dwell on verse 26, just for a few more minutes. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let me ask this question of you because it's a serious question indeed. Where will you go when you die? You're going to die. Where will you go when you die? One preacher of old took his two little boys to a cemetery and he said, I want you to bring a tape measure played around in the gravestones as little boys are apt to do anytime they're out with their fathers. And then he said, all right, let's measure some. I'm sure they measured some that were of great length, but you know, the little boys were surprised to find that some of those gravestones were shorter than they. And the father's point 
was to say to the children, death can come to anyone at any time. It's in God's hands. It is appointed once for man to die, and after that, the judgment, and to present the God. You say that's morbid. No, it's not morbid. It's just that our fathers lived with the reality of this thing in greater ways than we do. There was the infant mortality rate that was high. In God's providence, we are blessed that that is not in our particular part of the world so great as it is in other parts still in the world. You know, we try to, to do everything we can to do away with death. We try and make it pretty. We, we try and push it to the side. We, we, we burn bodies. We scatter ashes. We have these little gravestones now that you uh, have in the ground that you can hardly see. They all look alike. It's just very egalitarian. No longer do we have, except in rare instances, the great cemeteries with the personalized gravestones. Our culture does everything it can to push aside death. You go to funerals. Funerals have changed so immensely since I've been in the ministry over these many years. You used to hear Christ and judgment and death and heaven and hell. And now you go and you hear a lot about the person. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't thank God for the person, but that's what we hear. And people aren't pressed on this matter of eternity much anymore, not in most churches. But I'm pressing you with it. Because I want everyone under my charge to be saved, and I believe that God awakens sinners through his truth. And one of those great truths is the truth of where we will spend eternity with or without Christ. Let me ask, where will you spend eternity? When I was a boy of 13 years old, my best friend died. He was 16. My friends were always older than I. He drowned in the Flint River, South Georgia. I still remember weeping at his grave. It can happen to anyone, anytime, any age. Let me ask you again, where will you be when you die? When the judge wields his sword, how will you stand? The rocks and the hills will not cover you. The judgment will be terrible. The pain will be eternal. The loss beyond compare for those who do not trust in Christ. What must it be to die without a Savior? To die without the value of Christ's blood? You will not come to me that you might have life, Jesus said on one occasion. On another he said, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Those are Jesus' words. You think you are free, that your will is free, and you're, you can just change any time you want, any way you want. My friend, you are in gross bondage. Your will is in bondage to sin. And you need the hammer of the cross to break down the door of your supposed prideful, vaunted free will. May God have pity on you if you are sitting here today and you do not know Jesus. Because at this point, unless he changes your heart and saves your soul, you would rather lose your soul than have Christ. You need a clean heart. You need guilt to be removed. You need a perfect robe of righteousness in order that you may stand on that great day of judgment. And so I ask you these questions because Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Hear me, for the sake of your soul, flee from the wrath to come. Amen.